The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, in the second chapter, and reading from verse 14 to verse 17. From verse 14 to verse 17, in the second chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also the children of Noph and Tahapanes have broken the crown of thy head. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by the way? Now those who come here regularly will know that uh, We've been looking at the message of this second chapter in this book of the prophet Jeremiah for a number of Sunday evenings, and uh, I come back to it this evening because the message of the prophet continues. What have we got here? Well, let me hurriedly summarize what we have. Here was a prophet raised and sent by God to address the children of Israel at one of the most Terrible points in their long and checkered history. Things had been going wrong for a number of years. There had been a decline all round, not only in religion, but in morals, and even in government and in a military sense. And here they are, in utter weakness and confusion, and they're threatened by a mighty powerful enemy from Chaldea, who is waiting to attack them and to destroy their cities and to carry them away into captivity. Now, that was the condition of the Jews, the children of Israel, at this particular point when God raised up this prophet. He's not the only prophet God raised up. He's one of the last in a mighty succession that God had called and had given the message to in order to save the people from this calamity, this nemesis which was threatening them. And here he comes with his message from God. What's the point of it? Is it simply to denounce? Oh, no. The ultimate object is to save the people, to save them from the calamity. It's still not too late. There was still a possible hope, if they but listened to the message. The object in sending Jeremiah was one of grace. The intention was, I say, to spare them, to save them, from what was coming to meet them. Now then, that is the general message. And the prophet puts it really in one great uh, phrase, which is this, that all their troubles are due to the fact that they've turned their backs upon God. We've got it in our text tonight, as we've had it on previous Sunday evenings. He keeps on repeating that. It's the one thing that causes their trouble. But of course, it's the one thing that they didn't realize. The one thing they didn't want to realize. The one thing they didn't believe. They were doing everything else, but they wouldn't do this. They wouldn't return to God. However, God in his great kindness and infinite compassion and condescension not only sends this message, he pleads with them. You remember we were looking at that a few Sunday nights back? He says, wherefore I will yet plead with you. He's like a barrister handling a case, deploying arguments, giving reasons. God does that. And here we see the love and the compassion and the kindness of God. Oh, this great and almighty God, 
who inhabiteth eternity, and who existed without us, and who could exist without us. He condescends to plead with us, to reason, to argue, to ask us to consider. And we've seen that he does so in different ways. He puts it from this angle and that angle, in order that these people might be awakened to see the cause of their troubles. And here this evening, we come to another aspect of this pleading, this arguing, in which God indulges with these people in order that he might save them from calamity. Well now, why are we looking at all this? Are we animated by some purely antiquarian or historical interest? Are we just here, looking back, and as it were, as we read a book on history or we read somebody's biography, just to spend a little time and to enjoy ourselves in making some sort of analysis, God knows that's not our business. We are looking into this because of our own state and condition. And because it is the message of the Bible to say that these messages, which were true in the case of the children of Israel, are equally true this very night. It's the same thing. You see, we're in a troubled world. Things are going wrong. The world has never been more troubled than it is at this present moment. Do you feel happy about the situation? Can you feel happy? It's impossible. I'm not only thinking of the wars we've had and the threat of further wars and calamities. I'm thinking of the whole state of society. The problems, the minor problems. When you consider these terrible problems of the end of the world, these are lesser problems which are uh, causing such concern to the authorities and to the government. The things which are disgracing the life of the community, these horrible things that we read of in our newspapers, the breakdown of morality and law and order and all the confusion of this modern world. Now the question is, what's it all due to? The world is in trouble tonight. We're in trouble, exactly as these children of Israel were. And the answer is that it is still the same thing. It's always been the same. There's nothing new in this. This is the story of the human race ever since that original fall. That's why we're looking at it together. Now, here this evening, we are coming to a new section. And it's new in this sense. So far, we've been looking at these children of Israel in their trouble, uh, mainly in terms of their attitude towards God and the perversion which uh, was manifested in that attitude. There was a kind of monstrous element in it. You remember we were looking at it last Sunday. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, says the prophet, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord. These uh, children of Israel are behaving in such an extraordinary manner. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. That's what we've been dealing with so far. The extraordinary perversion which led these children of Israel, who were so wise and intelligent and cute and understanding in all other respects in life, but who become such unutterable fools and completely irrational when they come to their relationship with God and to consider the interests of their immortal souls. Now that's been the message in general so far, which he's put before us, in a number of different ways. But now there's something new. What is that? Well, this is it. He now begins to put before them the consequences of all that. 
He shows them what all that has led to, the results of all that. In other words, we are now going to look not so much at the attitude of these people as at the people themselves. And we are going to read about and to study what is true of them as the result of this utter folly of turning their backs upon God. No, it's a, it's a part still, I say, of God's pleading with them. And it's a most remarkable statement, this, that we're looking at in these verses 14 to 17 in this second chapter of Jeremiah's prophecy. What is it? Well, you know, here we've got a very perfect summary of the essential story of the whole human race. It's true of the children of Israel. What we are told here about them is absolutely true. They started off as the children of God, sons of God. But here they are, servants, slaves, spoiled, with their cities burned without inhabitant and worse things threatening them. Now then, the great question is, how have they gone from that to this? Well, now I say we are told here how it happened. But this is the thing I want to emphasize. It is not only a true analysis of the sad story of the decline and degeneration and final defeat of the children of Israel. It is a perfect statement of the story of the human race. My dear friends, there is nothing facing mankind tonight that is so apposite to its condition, nothing more rele relevant to our immediate problems and difficulties than just this. I put my question again. Here's the big question. Not so much what is the matter with the world, as why is the world as it is? Why is man as he is this evening? Why is anybody unhappy? Why is anybody wretched? Why is anybody failing? Why does anyone feel unclean and unworthy? Why is anyone filled with foreboding and alarm? What's the matter? What's the cause of it? Why? On a larger scale is the whole world as it is at this present hour. Now then, that's the question. And I'm here to assert once more that there is only one answer to those questions. And it is the answer that is perfectly summarized in these verses that we are examining. Let me put it like this to you. I've extracted some three main principles from the statement that is before us. They're quite simple. Here's the first. Man is not now what he once was. This is the first and the fundamental proposition of the Bible, that there has been a calamitous change in the condition of man. Man is not now what he once was. Listen. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Well, what's he mean? Well, what he means is this. Here is the prophet looking at the children of Israel. And he says, what do I see? Well, I see a condition of slavery. I see my fellow countrymen as a nation, he says, we are all in a condition of servants and a slave. But wait a minute, he says. Is Israel a slave, a bond slave, a servant? 
Were we brought into being by God in order to be slaves? Was that our original condition? Is that what we were meant to be? Was this meant to be our destiny? Is this really the truth about us? Now then, do you see by putting his question, he answers it. No, no, he says, we were never meant to be like this. We were never meant to be slaves and servants, non-slaves. That was not our destiny. We were created by God for himself. We boasted in the fact that we were the sons of God. But this is what we are. Then you see you get the same suggestion in verse 17. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by the way? It wasn't always like this. There was a time when we were led in the way by God. That was our proper position. We were never meant to be this. Now, here, my dear friends, is to me the most important single truth in a way that anybody can ever grasp. This is the first great vital question. And no question should ever be allowed by us to come before this. Why do I say that? Well, I say that for this reason. What we propose to do about mankind is obviously determined by our understanding of the present condition of mankind. Therefore, that's the point at which we start. Why is man like this? He was not meant to be like that, says the Bible. Well, very well. Everybody's got that feeling. We all feel we, we could do with a better world, and we want to have a better world. Some people go into politics to do that, others into social work, and others take up pure thought. They're all concerned about improving the world. Man has always been trying to make this world a better place from the beginning. Why? Well, because he's not been satisfied with things as they are. Ah, yes, but you see, why does he succeed? Why are not things getting better and better? Why isn't the world every century a better place than it was the previous century? Why not? Isn't it about time we face this question? Where do we go wrong? Well, I'm here to say that the teaching of the Bible is that we go wrong there right at the very beginning with the first question. And the first question is, what exactly is the condition of man now? And what is its relationship to the past? And therefore, what is its relationship to the future? Now then, here we come, I say, to something that is absolutely vital. Because there are two main views about this. The one view tells us that man is in a stage of transition. You're familiar with this view, I needn't keep you. It's the whole theory of evolution. It became very popular just about a hundred years ago. Darwin's famous book, Origin of Species, was published in 1859, and it's been popular ever since. Now, the basis of that view is this. doesn't matter about the details, but the essential principle is this, that man is a creature that has evolved from something very low and very primitive as the result of the struggle and the development of hidden forces within him and without, he's gradually been becoming more complex, more developed, rising up out of the primitive slime, 
beginning to develop his higher centers, higher powers of thinking, leaving the animal behind him, becoming more truly human. And it's a progressive process. Now, that's the view, isn't it? That's the popular view. And that therefore our troubles are due to the fact that obviously we haven't had time yet to arrive at perfection. Man, we are told, is very much better than he once was. He was once not, not even an animal. It was lower than that. Just a bit of amorphous matter, protoplasm, primitive slime, call it what you like. But then he's very, very slowly and painfully evolved up through these stages, through these millennia of, of years, and he's arrived at this. But, we are told, he's not perfect yet. He's on the way up, but he hasn't arrived at the top. He hasn't arrived yet at the place where he's meant to be. But he's going on. He's going up. Now, that's one view. But, you know, that's not the view that is taught in the Bible. It's the diametrically opposed view. We're reminded of that here. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Is this the natural condition for men at the present time? Is this all right for men just now? Is it something that we can be more or less pleased about? Not finally satisfied, but can we say to ourselves, it's all right, it's a stage in the development, it's all right. No, says the Bible. That is not the condition of men. Now, is it not obvious that this is really a very fundamental and a very vital question? This is true not only of the whole race, but it's true of every one of us. Why do we fail? Why do we fall? Why do we sin? Why are we unhappy as the result of doing so? What is it? Is it the fact that we really just not shaken off all yet of the animal out of which we've come and evolved? Or is the Bible right? You see, for what the Bible says is this, that the story of mankind is not one of evolution. It is one of fall. Now, it's one or the other. And the Bible is perfectly clear and explicit. The Bible, in the case of the children of Israel, says this. That's what Jeremiah was saying to these people. He says, you know, you were not made like this. This wasn't the story at the beginning. God said, Israel is my son. He said, you are my people. He made you for himself. You were not a nation like other nations. God made you for himself. He called Abram, turned him into a nation. That's your origin. And you were meant to live as princes and as kings. Didn't God tell the people that? There at the foot of Mount Sinai, before the giving of the law. He said, he had a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a people for my own possession. That's what he said to them. And now Jeremiah reminds them of that. He said, that's where you began. Your beginning was glorious. And you've fallen from that. That's the truth about you. You're not on a way up to a position of greatness. You've fallen from a position of greatness. And, my dear friends, that is what the Bible tells us about the whole human race. Man was created uniquely in the image of God. Man is a special, distinct, a separate creation. Man has not evolved from the animals. God said, let us make man in our own image. And in the image and likeness of God, Made he him. How did he make him? He made him perfect. He made him upright. He endowed him with his own righteousness and original righteousness. Man at the beginning was absolutely free. He'd got a free will. 
He was perfectly happy. He was in paradise. He lived a life of communion with God. He spoke to God as God's friend. He had no craven fear of God. There was no disease, no illness, no unhappiness. Not only that, man was uh, made the Lord of creation. God set him as his regent, as it were, to control and to govern the earth and to use it for his own pleasure. God made it all. Then he made man over it all, Lord of creation. Put it all under his hands, gave him the power over it all to name the animals and all these things. That's the story. Indeed, it is right to say of men, as the Bible says of him, that in a sense he was thus, a son of God. I wonder whether you ever noticed that. There's a most interesting genealogical table given to us in the third chapter of Luke's Gospel. Have you ever noticed how it ends? Listen to this. It's tracing the pedigree of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the end. Which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Now, the word son is not there in the original, but the translators are right. It's implied right away through. It starts with sonship, and it goes on. Adam, which was of God. Now, there, according to the Bible, is man as he was meant to be, man as he was. Not only that, as our 17th verse reminds us, he was led in the way. Which means that not only was he living a life of communion with God, he was subservient to God's Demands and requests and desires. God had given men a law. And men at first delighted in giving obedience to God's law. And in living in the way and the manner that God indicated. Now that is how men began. It was a perfect life. There was no sin. There was no sorrow. There was no failure. There was no unhappiness. There was no pain. There was nothing to deface life. God looked down upon it all, and he saw that it was God. That is man as he came from God. That's the origin of man. Man's not a being on the way up. He's one who's fallen from where he was. Isn't it obvious that this is a very vital matter? It's going to determine all our outlook upon what is needed, what is necessary. And my dear friends, a part of my message is this is to say that the world is as it is tonight. Because for the last hundred years, mankind has been treating itself on the false supposition. All our multiplied activities have been on the basis of the fact that man is rising and developing. But where have we arrived? Where have we landed? What of the success of our treatment? Isn't it about time that we stopped for a moment and began to think? And face this first, this primary question. My dear friend, you don't understand this world if you don't grasp this point. Man is as he is because he's fallen. He was never meant for this kind of life that we are now living today. This is what man has done. It isn't what God has done. It isn't what man was at the beginning. Man is not what he once was. He has fallen. There has been this terrible, this awful declension. Very well, there's my first proposition. Let me hurry to the second. Let us consider then in the second place what man now is. He's not what he once was. Well, what is he? Well, we are given the complete answer here. 
The first thing I'm told about men as he is now is that he's a slave. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Just a little child born to slaves in the family? Born a slave and continuing a slave. That's what he is. He wasn't meant to be that. He once wasn't that, but that is what he is now. You know, the trouble with the world tonight is that it doesn't realize the truth about itself. This is the simple truth about us all by nature. We are slaves. We are born slaves. David in his psalm, 51st psalm, puts it with agony and with anguish when he says, In sin did my mother conceive me. Born in sin, shapen in iniquity. What do you mean, says someone? Well, this is the sort of thing I mean. Man no longer has a free will. Of course, he says he has. But he says many other things that are not true, doesn't he? I'm absolutely free, says the man. I've got free will. Well then, my friend, if you have free will, you must be a terrible fool or you wouldn't be doing the things you're doing. If mankind is really free in its will, well, why doesn't it exercise the freedom? and get itself out of its troubles. But man isn't free. Man is no longer in control of himself. He is no longer able to decide. Well, what is he? Well, he's a servant. He's a slave. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Romans in the 6th chapter, verse 17, puts it like this. But God be thanked, he says, that you, who were once the slaves of sin, have believed from the heart the form of sound doctrine delivered unto you. You were, says Paul, nothing but the slaves, the bond slaves of sin. Listen to him saying it again to those Ephesians, in the epistle to the Ephesians. You were he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature as others the children of wrath. That's how he puts it. What does all this mean? Listen to him again, the natural men. The natural mind is enmity against God. He's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. Listen to him again. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he. Listen to him again. If our gospel be hid, why is it hid? Why doesn't everybody believe the gospel? If our gospel be hid, well, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they believe the glorious gospel of Christ. That's what he said. And you know that is the message of the Bible from beginning to end. Man is not free. Man is a slave. Slave to what? Well, as Paul has been saying, 
a slave to the course of this world, a slave to the mind and the outlook of this world, a slave of the thing to do, slave to fashions, doing what everybody else does, doing what he reads about in the newspapers, doing what he sees on the cinema, buying the books that everybody's buying, and he calls himself free, free choice. Free choice, it's determined entirely by the newspapers. If there hadn't been this case, most of the people wouldn't have been buying this horrible book. You see, man, oh, but he's free. He's not free at all. He's just a slave. Advertisement, news, bulletins, and he does it. Why? Well, everybody's doing it. Man is a slave in his mind. He's a slave everywhere. And unfortunately, he's not only a slave in that respect, he's a slave to these terrible unseen spiritual forces that manipulate the mind and the outlook of men. But oh, it isn't, it doesn't stop at that, does it? Man is a slave of lusts, passions, desires of the flesh, desires of the mind, an absolute slave to these things. Am I romancing? Or am I describing you, my friend? Am I telling you the truth about yourself? Can you stop doing things when you want to stop? Can you give up an evil practice or habit by just saying, I'm never going to do it again? Is it as easy as that? Can you give up smoking if you've been a smoker by just waving a hand? Can you give up any of these habits of the body or of the mind simply by deciding? You may have said a thousand times, I'm never going to lose my temper again, but you've lost it, haven't you? You've said, I'm going to walk along the streets. I'm not going to look to the right nor to the left. Can you do it? How glibly and easily we talk about the freedom of the will. But my dear, fact, my dear friend, is this not the fact that we're all slaves? We fight against these things, but they beat us. They get us down. We go on repeating the same sin, but that's slavery. If you say you can be free, why are you not free? The trouble is you can't be free. You're mastered by forces and powers greater than yourself. Some of them are within us. Some of them are hereditary. Some of them come from the world and its way around and about us. Some of them are produced by these evil powers that are everywhere. These principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, the prince of the power of the earth, the god of this world. Men boast that they don't believe the gospel. They boast. You know, they don't realize this. They don't believe it because they're not allowed to believe it. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. They're slaves. Not to believe this gospel means that you're a slave. That you're not allowed to believe it. Oh, our Lord himself has put the picture once and forever. Here is his picture of the human race. The strong man armed. Keepeth his goods in peace. Who are the goods? Mankind. Who's the strong man armed? The devil. And you read this book, read the lives of the patriarchs and the prophets, the earliest and the best men that this world has known, every one of them was defeated by the devil, every one. Do you know, my friend, there's only been one person in this world, in all its long history, who has been able to conquer the devil and to master him completely. And he is the son of God who came out of heaven. And took unto him human nature and was born as a babe of the Virgin Mary. Mankind is in slavery. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? He is. He wasn't meant to be. He wasn't at the beginning. He's become it. He's a slave. But not only that, he's been robbed of all his best possessions. Listen, is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? 
Why is he spoiled? Spoiled means this, that he has been despoiled, despoiled of his goods. It doesn't mean spoiled in the sense that we talk about spoiling a child. To spoil means to rob, to take from him. Listen, the young lions roared upon him and yelled and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. He's been spoiled. An enemy has come and has robbed him and robbed him of his brightest and his best possession. That was true of Israel. Eventually the Chaldean army came. It smashed the temple, reduced it to a mass of rubble, raised the glorious palaces and the beautiful buildings of Jerusalem to the ground, smashed up all their cities and spoiled their country, carried them away into captivity. Spoiled? Oh, but this is but... A very shadowy picture of what is true of the human race in a spiritual sense. Man has been robbed, he's been spoiled. And oh, he's been spoiled of the best of the most glorious things. What are they? Well, that, or, that original righteousness which he had. It's lost, it's, it's gone. He was able to stand upright and to look into the face of God, but he lost it. And so when he heard the voice of the Lord God in the garden in the cool of the evening, he and the woman ran to hide themselves behind the trees. Why, well, they had a feeling of unworthiness. They'd lost their righteousness. They knew God was holy, and they couldn't meet him gladly as they'd done in the past. They'd lost the original righteousness. This is what sin has done for us. It's robbed us of our purity. It's robbed us of our chastity. It's robbed us of our cleanness, our wholeness. It's robbed us of our fellowship with God and our communion with Him. And we become strangers to God. That's the most priceless thing of all. It's cut us off from God and His divine life. And we are children of wrath under the wrath of God instead of being under the benediction of God. But let me put it to you in detail. We've been spoiled. We've been robbed. What are we robbed of? Well, you know, we've been robbed in a sense even of our very minds. Did you notice how the apostle put it there in that fourth chapter of Ephesians that we read at the beginning? He said, having the understanding darkened. Mankind can't think straightly as the result of the fall and as the result of sin. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. It's a terrible thing, this. It's man's mind that has suffered most of all as a result of this fall, as a result of listening to the devil's temptation and falling into sin. Man's mind is darkened, and isn't it obvious that it is? That is why our world is as it is, you see. We've multiplied our institutions, we've done everything conceivable, but instead of getting better, it seems to be getting worse. Why? Well, men can't think straightly. And this is the point at which he's most dark. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in himself as the creature of God. He doesn't believe in his soul. He thinks he knows better. He thinks he's complimenting himself by saying that he's just some sort of ape with a highly developed cerebrum. He doesn't think clearly. He's prepared to think things like that. And he rejects this. That means that his understanding is dark. Oh, yes, says Paul, again in writing to the Corinthians in the second epistle, 
There's a veil before their faces. He says, they read the Old Testament scriptures, but they don't see their meaning. Why? Well, there's a veil. Blinkers. You see, you can sit before an open book, but you can't see it. It's like a man with a musical score before him. He hasn't got the musical faculty. He's looking at the book, but it says nothing to him. He's blind, musical. And so it is with art and many other things. Now that's the whole condition of mankind. Here is God's book which tells us the simple truth about ourselves. But it's the one thing the world doesn't believe. Why? Understanding darkened. Drugged. You may have the best brain in the world, but if it's under the influence of alcohol, you talk like a fool, and you don't understand, and you can't reason. Why? Well, you see, the brain's all right, but something's happened to it. It's been drugged. It's got into this terrible condition. It's diseased, as it were. It's not allowed to function truly. The understanding darkened. That's the condition of men. And the same is true of his heart. His foolish heart was darkened, says Paul. And then he adds this. They gave themselves up, he says, to vile affections. Oh, a terrible change has taken place in man's heart. Man's heart and feelings at the beginning, at the original making, were pure, they were clean. He loved God. He loved light. He loved purity, he loved holiness. Does he now? Oh, says Christ, it is out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, all evils. They come out of the heart of man. That heart that was once pure and loved God. Oh, says Christ again, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. But men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They prefer to read Lady Chatterley's lover to the New Testament. Why? Because their hearts are evil. They delight in filth. Foolish talking, jesting, says Paul. These things that are not convenient. That's what they love. They delight in it. They gloat in it. It ravishes them. What's it mean? It means an unclean heart. Not only have our minds been robbed of their ability to think, our hearts have been robbed of their purity and of their cleanliness. And the result is that our wills are utterly paralyzed because our wills are governed by our minds and by our hearts. A man does what he thinks and what he likes. And because he can't think straightly and loves what is evil, he chooses what is evil. The flesh, says Paul, lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, so that he cannot do the things that he would. I delight in the law of God after the inward men, but I find another law in my members, dragging me down to captivity. The evil that I would not, that I do, and the good that I would, I do not. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I'm a slave, and I've been robbed of the power of my will. I can't do what I want to do, and I do what I hate. I keep on repeating a thing that makes me filled with remorse and sadness and misery, and I don't do what I know I ought to do. Isn't that true of every one of us? That's what sin has done. That's how man is. He's become a slave. He's been robbed and spoiled of his highest and his best possessions. And on top of it all, he's been humbled. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself? Listen, also the children of Noth and Tehapanes have broken the crown of thy head. 
Man is disgraced and humbled. I needn't keep you with this. Don't we see the disgrace at the present time? Look at men with all his learning and all his knowledge. Look at him drunk. Look at a man of ability, a man of integrity in his profession, in his business, in his calling. Drunk. It's a disgrace. It's a humiliation. That a man endowed with such faculties and propensities should be talking like a fool and have an inane expression on his face. But it isn't only drink. Look at the behavior of men high up in what is called society, high up in the professions, members of parliament, leaving their wives and little children, living and cohabiting with another woman, wife of another man. What's the cause of this lust? It's a disgrace. Man is humble. He is living a life of shame. Look at the things that interest people, the things they enjoy, the things they gloat in. Look at the things they're doing. Man, I say, is not only a slave and he's not only been robbed. He's a disgrace. He's humble. He's behaving often like a beast and worse. That's the condition of man. He didn't start like that. He was not made like that. That's what he has become. That is his present condition, which brings me to my third and last point. Why is he like this? What's brought him to this? And here's your answer. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by the way? Why is man as he is? Is it simply because the evolutionary process hasn't yet had enough time to bring us to perfection? Is that it? Is it simply a kind of lag in the evolutionary process? Is anyone, I ask, fool enough still to believe that when we're witnessing a decline before our eyes with all our added knowledge and information and learning and all our societies? There is a declension taking place. And still we talk about, ah, oh, we mustn't be impatient. Man has only been going a few million years. You know, he needs a few million more. Be patient with him. Patient with him. Man, I say, is not going up. He's going down. Why is man as he is? Is it that he has never had a chance? That's what we say, isn't it? Never had a chance. If only I'd had a chance. Chance? Man was made perfect and put in paradise. He couldn't have had a better chance. Chance? God has raised up prophets to address him. Oh, what am I talking about? God sent his only son into this world and he lived a life before men. He taught them. Chance. You'd never have a higher or a greater chance than that. It isn't that he hasn't had a chance. Ah, says somebody, it's my circumstances. If only I'd been born and brought up in different circumstances, I wouldn't be like this. Circumstances. It was in Eden, in paradise, that men fell. It is sometimes in the home and house of most godly, saintly parents that a man falls into sin. Ah, oh, says another, it's other people. I was never given a chance, really, it's the other one. That wife of mine, that husband of mine. If only I'd married a different person. It's other people. They don't understand me. They're all so selfish. But you see, everybody else is saying the same thing. 
And it's all rubbish. It's all a lie. Why are we as we are? Here's the answer. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God? At this point I can even quote William Shakespeare. He saw it very clearly. This nonsense we talk about ourselves. Never had a chance. Never given a fair play. If only this other person. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. Which the Bible puts, you see, as it's put here, that man has procured this unto himself. It was when he was free and a companion of God and had everything in his favor that he deliberately rebelled against God. He thought he was clever. He thought he was wise. He thought he could do things better than God. He turned his back on God, listened to the devil, and down he went. The children of Israel had done the same thing. God gave them a perfect start. Ah, yes, but they knew better. These other nations, they were having a good time. They didn't have to keep the Sabbath. They didn't have to refuse to eat certain animals and certain fish. They could marry whoever they liked. What a wonderful life. They said, we are being hemmed in by God. So they turned their backs on God. He was leading them in the way. They knew better. And they listened to the others and followed them. And down they went. And here they are, slaves and miserable and robbed and despoiled and disgraced. And it is true of every one of us. There's no need to be like this, my friend. There is another way. It is still possible to be led by God in this world. The way of the transgressor is hard. Why are you miserable? I say the ultimate answer is this. It's your own fault. You procured it unto yourself. You needn't stay there. You needn't remain there. But you know, the way out of it is the realization that it is your own fault. There is no hope whatsoever for a man or for a woman who still thinks that the failure in life can be explained by other people or circumstances or this or that. While you're doing that, you're hopeless and you'll remain what you are. But if you want to be delivered, the first thing you've got to say is this. I'm a fool. I have deliberately turned my back upon God. I've ridiculed him and his teaching. I've laughed at him. I've bursted in my knowledge. I've gloated in the fact that I'm not religious. Christ and his salvation. Ha, I've said. All right for primitive peoples, perhaps, and women and children, but not for sophisticated men in the middle of the 20th century. The blood of Christ. Bread and wine, Calvary, nothing to do with me, nonsense. I'm a man, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. I'm standing, my head is bloody, but it's unbowed. I'm going to master circumstances. And as long as you think like that and talk like that, you'll go on from failure to failure, from defeat to defeat, and from disgrace to disgrace. There is only one thing that is absolutely essential. And that is that we have procured this unto ourselves in our spurning the voice divine. My friend, it's my privilege to tell you this. I say it with this bread and wine on this communion table before me. We are all, as I've been describing, we're all born in sin, shapen in iniquity. We've been robbed of the image. It's debased, defaced, marred. We've been robbed of our righteousness and purity and holiness. Robbed of a real mind and a pure heart. 
and an ability to exercise will and determination. All this is true of us. We've become a disgrace. But thank God that needn't continue. We needn't go on being like that. We've brought this upon ourselves. We can't extricate ourselves out of it. Do as you will. You'll never deliver yourself from it. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. O oh, loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the conflict came. And that a higher gift than grace should flesh and blood refine. God's presence and his very self and essence all divine. Oh, my dear beloved friend, you see what you are, but you needn't remain there. As Jeremiah pleaded with his contemporaries and told them that it wasn't too late, if they but acknowledged it and repented it and repented of it and turned back to God, he'd receive them and pardon them and give them a new start and lead them again in the way. He tells us this same thing infinitely more gloriously tonight in Jesus Christ and his glorious gospel. God sent his only son into this world to take our guilt upon him. That's why he died on Calvary's cross. His body was broken, his blood was shed. Why? Because he was receiving the punishment of my sins. And thus God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. But he not only forgives me because Christ has died for me, he gives me a new nature. He gives me a new life. You know what you need is a new nature. I've told you, as Christ has put it, men love darkness rather than light. You see, it's a matter of nature. Wouldn't you like to have a nature that loves God? Wouldn't you like to have a nature that loves light and not darkness? Wouldn't you like to have a nature that loves purity instead of filth? Wouldn't you like to have a nature that loves the Bible instead of trash? Vile, polluted trash. Wouldn't you like to be holy and good and enjoy that kind of thing? And look forward to going to heaven and seeing God and spending your eternity in his holy presence? Do you know, my dear friend, that that's the very thing that's offered you freely and for nothing tonight? If you but repent and acknowledge and recognize your sin to God and ask him to have mercy, that's what he'll tell you. He'll tell you that you're freely forgiven in his son who died for your sins, that he'll give you new life, he'll make you anew, he'll give you a second birth. He'll give you a new mind, a new understanding. You'll be able to say with Paul, we have the mind of Christ. You'll be able to say, I'm a children of light, a child of light and a child of the day. I no longer belong to the darkness and the night. I was, but I am, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is yours this evening, if you but believe it. You'll have a new mind. You'll have a new heart. You'll have a new will. Listen, says Paul to the Corinthians, don't you remember what you were? Some of you, he says, read it when you go home. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9. 
God is, be not deceived, he says, God is not mocked. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, these sodomites, these perverts, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor murderers, nor drunkards, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such, he says, were some of you, they were like that. But, ye are washed. He are sanctified. He are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of his Spirit. They were like that. They were no longer like that. They were saints adorning the church of God. How had they done it? Had they pulled themselves out of the gutters? Of course not. No man can. God had pulled them out in Christ. He'd forgiven them freely. He'd given them a new mind, a new heart, David cried, create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You pray like that. Ask God for it. He's promised to give it. In Christ, he'll give it to you. If you really want it, ask him. Cry out unto him. And he has promised, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. You can be delivered. You can be restored. You can become a son again, a child of God, no longer a slave, but a child. And what you've lost will be restored. In him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. And you'll be able to look forward to the future without fear and without terror, knowing that if you're killed suddenly by a bomb, it just means going to be with Christ, which is far better. Oh, God has undone in Christ what the devil has done to us through the fall, what we have procured unto ourselves by listening to him instead of listening to the voice and the leading of God, just as you are in your need. Go back, cry out, keep on until you know that you're forgiven and restored. Amen.